0: Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kane. Cause it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day, oh baby, any day that you're gone away.
1: It's a beautiful day. Hi, thanks so much for joining me today. Before we get into the show, I'd just like to say a really big thank you for both your emails and your social media messages telling me how much you're enjoying a breath of fresh air. It's really heartening to hear from you, and I'm grateful for all of your great suggestions. I want you to know that I am pursuing each one relentlessly so that we can shine a light on your favourite artist very soon. For those who may have just tuned in, please feel free to reach out to me with your comments or guest suggestions for artists that hail from the 60s, 70s or 80s. You can do that through the website abreathoffreshair.com.au. Now, coming up, a very special guest from the 80s. He's English singer-songwriter, musician and producer Nick Kershaw, if you can't quite place the name, you'll probably recognise him from this song. Wouldn't
0: it be good to be in your shoes Even if it was for just one day Wouldn't it be good if we could wish ourselves away
1: Nick Kershaw exploded onto the UK pop scene in 1984 as a solo artist. He had a string of global hit singles and he performed at Live Aid. After stepping out of the limelight to concentrate on writing and producing, Nick wrote Chesney Hawke's huge hit, The One and Only. And he's collaborated over the years with people like Elton John, Sia, Gary Barlow and Bonnie Tyler, all the while continuing to release his own albums. want to meet him? Let's do it. Sandy. Nick, how are you?
2: Very good. Thank you very much. How Excellent.
1: are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for your time. Really no appreciate it. At all. Nick Kershaw, a lovely guy by the name of Brett in West Meadows here in Melbourne, wrote to me and said he was a huge fan of yours and he wondered what you were up to today. What are and you up to today?
2: Specifically, this day, <laughs> I am in my studio recording some more songs from the shelf, which are songs that I, I wrote back in the 90s when I wasn't recording. Just that I've lifted off the shelf that I thought merited a public airing. They've come from various places. Some I co wrote with other up and coming artists uh, or other songwriters. Some I wrote on my own and just, they just never found at home. So they, they're there. Go and go check them out. Tell us
1: your favorite one.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, ooh, the Devil in the Deep. Check that the one. The Devil out. in the Deep. Okay.
1: What if you got this all
0: wrong? What if you're betting on the wrong guy? Oh my How can you be so sure about it? Have you thought it out? How can you be so faithful? Unshakable Do you ever dare to think you might fall from grace? Do you have a plan to fall back on just in case? Do you say a prayer before you go to sleep for the devil in
1: the deep? you had a bit of a hiatus through the 90s let's just go back to where it all started many of our listeners would indeed know who you are some of them may not know so much about you so i wonder yeah. if we could recap on how you got into the industry in the first place and we'll come back right up to present time
2: okay a potted life story then if you would um My mum was a singer, she sang operatic and leader stuff, so she'd be cooking the dinner and the hallelujah chorus would be coming out of the kitchen. You know, like any sort of young kid, I'd rather play football and play with my Lego. I wasn't really that interested until I was sort of early teens, I guess, when I started discovering my own music.
1: Who were your major influences?
2: Well, it, it kind of went all over the place, really. I went through various phases to do with fashion and to do with what a particular tribe I was trying to join at the time. But early on, yeah, I guess it was glam rock and it was I mean Bowie was 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 a huge wow moment when I saw him and I, I heard what he was up to. That would have been the kind of a lad in the same kind of time. Watching him dash
0: away. Swinging an old bouquet. Mm-hmm.
2: various stages I went through. I was, I was a skinhead at one point so then I, I was obliged to listen to Slade and, and a lot of reggae. Then I had my prog phase so it was like Genesis and Yes and King Crimson and stuff. Before that was probably Deep Purple and Zeppelin and Alice Cooper.
1: So when was it really that you decided that your future was going to be in music?
2: The Bowie moment. That would have been when I first saw Bowie, and I would have been about 15. And a friend of mine had just got a guitar, and I was hanging out at his place and picking up his guitar. And Before that, I still wanted to be the center of attention. I went through a period of wanting to be an actor. You know, the usual things of score the winning goal in the FA Cup final, or <laughs> a racing car driver. Nothing too mundane in it. It's just anything that involves showing off, really. And then I discovered I could actually do it and that I had some kind of talent for it. So I thought, wow, and I was rubbish at school, at anything else, I thought, the only way I'm gonna make anything of myself in life is to pursue this. So yeah, I would've been about 15 years old when I decided I was gonna play music and write my own music and, and do that for a living.
1: So how did you manage to break into the business?
2: Well, that was quite a long process as it turned out. First of all, I was in school bands, then I had sort of my own band, then I went through a phase of actually earning a living in a functions band. I started kind of professionally as a musician back when I was sort of in my early twenty, in my 20s, in the end of 1978, some around about that time. I was in a jazz fusion band and we played a jazz fusion, Funny enough, um, which, is, <laughs> which is what attracted me to this band in the first place. Uh, but to actually earn a living, we played everything. We played functions, bar mitzvahs, weddings you name it, we played it, Okay. which is incredibly good training. Really. It really was a, a great apprenticeship for me. But that band split up at the beginning of 82 because we didn't have any work and I thought I'd better sit down and, and try and write some songs. And I did that and hoiked them around record companies and got the usual pile of rejection slips.
1: Nick says it was youthful exuberance that kept him going.
2: I was just absolutely positive that it was going to happen. Right from the age of 17 or 18 years old, when I flunked out of school, I was completely Sure that it was going to happen. I had no doubt in my mind. Uh, and it's only when you look back and you realise how lucky you got. So it, it didn't matter how many teachers were telling me I was an idiot and I was never going to amount to anything, and or whether it was my record company executives telling me I wasn't commercial enough, or whatever. I just took, took it on the chin and got got on with it because even when I was struggling to get a deal, I thought there was a long way to go before I was going to give up. There was a long road to travel before i was going to finally hang up my boots <laughs> and then as a last throw of the dice i kind of advertised in melody maker for for management and and found a manager and he took the same tape to the same people and got me a record deal
1: isn't that uh, amazing
2: it is amazing but from that point i recorded the first album in in 83 the first single was i won't let the sun go down on me and it, it did okay and it got me my name around the industry and i, I, I did a little tour of radio stations and stuff like that and it was being played on the radio because I was there when, when they were playing it but actually being caught unawares in out in public somewhere and my song coming on the radio that was Wouldn't It Be Good in the January of 1994 when I was like, sitting in a cab in London just driving along and, and it was Radio 1 was on in this cab and Wouldn't It Be Good came on and I was like wow
0: you wings <laughs> in the lobby
1: was on his way
2: second single came out at the beginning of AC4 and that was wouldn't it be good and that's the one that did the trick for me really it
1: certainly did it became number four in the uk number 46 in the us it really got you up and going
2: yeah it did it was it was literally as they say overnight success i mean it was literally that one one week i was completely anonymous and next week i couldn't walk down the street without either a disguise or a bodyguard really yeah, it was insane. Absolutely insane.
1: How did that feel for you? I mean, was was success all it was cracked up to be?
2: It it was it was everything and more, and it was it was the more that I wasn't very comfortable with. Really, it was <laughs> <laughs> it was you know, it's what I dreamed about. Obviously, I remember I'm doing my exams when I was 16 years old at school. My art exam was basically a, a picture of someone on stage with all these arms reaching up to them, you know, adoring this this person. So that that and in that respect, that it was kind of it was like that, and it was just amazing. And and who doesn't want to be the center of attention? You know, all that stuff was brilliant. Uh, um, but it was it was it was the fact that you were also public property. You know, people thought they owned you, and they'll bump in you know bump into you in the street and just just think they have some kind of ownership of you. And that 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 was the difficult thing, I think, and the loss the loss of freedom really. In two respects, one is that you you can't go. You can't go to pop down the shops and get a pint of milk. You can't do that. That might not seem like a very exciting thing
1: <laughs> to want to do. Yeah, to want
2: to do. But when you can't do it, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. So
1: it's that.
2: so, so, so you, what?
1: So what do you mean you couldn't do it? Well, were you likely to get mobbed if you tried to?
2: Yeah, literally. Absolutely. And,
1: and girls grabbing at your clothes your hair trying to kiss you all that stuff which
2: which sounds great fun doesn't it but it, it, it does. really is it's terrifying i remember being chased through a shopping mall in manchester by a, a, about 20 norwegian schoolgirls and and they' norwegians are big right so <laughs> <laughs> so it was really terrifying and i just i remember just going into with, with my security guard just sort of Seeking refuge in in a in a in a car phone warehouse, I think, and it was like, <laughs> but but you, know, you laugh about it now, but it really was bloody hell. What are we going to do? What if they catch me? You know, what's going to actually happen?
1: Wow! So literally overnight, you had to hire a security guard, and well, you wouldn't a have put a moustache and, and a silly it, hat, yeah. Did you really? You put a moustache and a silly oh, yeah. hat on? Absolutely. <laughs> How long did that last for?
2: It was well at, at its ex, most extreme. It wasn't that long. It was maybe two years, I guess. When it was like um, when you know I was that so familiar, fate, especially in the UK, it was like I, you couldn't get away from me. I mean, I, I remember sitting on a, on a rare day off. I thought oh, I'm just going to you know I'll I'll, I'll get up and have my breakfast, and I pour, poured some cornflakes into a, a bowl, and then a badge fell in. You know they used to give away free gifts in in, in cereal things. You know, yeah, I remember bag.
1: those days, yeah.
2: And a badge <laughs> fell into my bowl, and it was a picture of my face looking back at me, and I was like, "God, please give me a break." But that was, yeah, that was literally. But maybe two years, and then it's kind of along with the rest of my career started declining.
1: You got to be and- careful what you wish for.
2: Well, exactly, but that but no, at the time it was kind of a kind of a bit of relief and I was, you know you you get spotted but it wasn't quite the same it, you know, people would talk to stop and talk to you or, or, or whatever, but I wasn't gonna get mobbed after that. So that right. that was all
1: So but, those um, no- those Norwegian girls had grown up a couple of years?
2: Yeah, possibly or just moved on to someone else. <laughs> you know, that that's what happens. Fickle <laughs> things. <laughs> I got it
0: bad. You don't know how bad I got. It you
1: To Peter Frampton one time and he said that he was really pissed off because they called him a tinny bopper idol and he said the tinny boppers only last and like your music for a year and a half and then they do move on. Yeah. He said he'd rather have been taken seriously and not appealed to the tinny boppers at all.
2: Well, yeah, there, there is that, but on the other hand, I mean, you think, well, maybe it wouldn't have happened at all. If, yeah. if it wasn't for those guys, so yeah. I can't I can't you know that was that was my position and, I, and I, at the time I I did resent you know I spent all these years learning how to play the guitar and write songs and and I th- I thought I was you know pretty good at what I did and you know they screamed all the way through my guitar solos on stage so it's like <laughs> and,
1: and, and you resent that treatment too <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you resent that but then you but then you look back and you think well. You know, that, that's probably, that's one of the big reasons it actually happened and one of the reasons I'm still making music now is because that happened, yeah.
1: So, Nick Kershaw, Peter Frampton also said to me that he had a lot of trouble because of his good looks, that the girls were after him more for his looks, he thought, than for his actual music. I can imagine that your good looks back in the day would have played that sort of part as well.
2: No, it's mainly my mind and my, my <laughs>
1: entire right. sense of humor. <laughs> i love it
2: but but the weird thing was you know i mean and you can see pictures that i've got pictures before i was famous and stuff like that and i really and i never got any any kind of attention from the opposite sex at all uh um, before I, I was famous so i did i never thought of myself but you know as particularly good looking but you can do amazing things with with stylists and hairdressers and and, and smoke and mirrors can't you
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't let him fool you He was always a good looker And still is Stay where you are More from Nick Kershaw in just a sec
0: This is a breath of fresh air
1: With Sandy Kaye. It's a beautiful day Thanks for being here Nick Kershaw released his first solo single I Won't Let The Sun Go Down On Me In 1983 And as he's already told us It really didn't do that well his next single, however, Wouldn't It Be Good, hit number five in the UK and made it to number 46 in the US. It was this success that turned Nick into a star in Britain and he quickly became a household name.
2: They're damn quite quickly, it's, I mean, more quickly than you'd imagine because, you know, the UK's not a big place and there were only three television stations at the time. So if you're on the BBC quite a lot, and I was, I was on top of the pups and, and whatever, It's going to pretty much every household. It's not just going to a couple of million anymore. The the viewing figures for these things were huge. So I started getting recognised quite early on. We went from the January of 1984. By the March, I probably couldn't leave my house without a disguise or a bodyguard. It was insane. It's like I said, be careful what you wish for. I mean, this is what I wanted. This is my dream. This is me living my dream. But yeah, you're just not ready for the freedoms that you lose. If you want a pint of milk, someone has to go and get that for you. And it's just life becomes really difficult. And also at the beginning, you don't have any money. It's like, what are the benefits? So I'm just getting stopped in the street. I'm getting jumped on. I'm getting my clothes ripped. I'm getting physically assaulted. And I haven't even got a pot to piss in.
1: Don't feel too sorry for him. Nick's the first to admit that when the royalties did start coming in, the rewards were huge and made the small inconveniences just fade away. Cold. when that very first single was re-released wasn't it i won't yeah. let the sun go down on me what prompted its re-release i mean i know you you mentioned that it didn't do much good when it first came out why yeah. did we try again
2: well i'd had two big hits wouldn't it be good and dancing girls and it would just seemed the obvious thing to do you know we didn't we, well that's us bang it out again and um redo the video and it's it's now the summer because it was released in the autumn and you know it's got the word sun in it it's just like it was a no-brainer let's release it again and you know it was the right thing to do obviously clearly it went off too yeah
1: so you were still being mobbed everywhere in 1984 it charted in at number two and yes, it uh, did. it led to an, a series of hit singles after that right
2: well yeah it, it was it, it all seemed slightly insane now because we i don't know who decided it but it was decided that I would make and release another album within nine months of the first one and I, I kind of went along with it I guess I, I mean it was the record company going wow this this you let's strike while the iron's hot and, you know let's get another record out by Christmas and, and all that kind of stuff and I was yeah, yeah I was stupid enough to say yeah all right then. so I was pr- promoting one album and making and writing and making the other one at the same time so yeah I think there were two albums and, and five hit singles in in one year, that's just...
1: though that they all became hits
2: it was a wave you know i was riding a wave and it, i don't know if it's necessarily about the, the quality of the product or, or just the kind of fact that i had a very very receptive audience who, who just wanted to hear everything i did you know and it, it, it was one of the, it was just one of those times that where everything you touched turned to gold you know and it was just yeah pretty amazing
1: so i can imagine very enjoyable but also a lot of hard work
2: it was a lot of hard work. It was, it was, as I said, it was all these things. It was incredibly exciting. I was getting to see the world. I was, get, I was living my dream. I was getting, you know, financially rewarded for it, and it was, it was all in, in, insanely good. And but at the same time, I spent most, most of it being incredibly stressed and, and worried about screwing up and, me- and looking an idiot in public and losing it. You know, and so, so it's kind of, it, it's a weird thing. And I, my, my one regret in. And that, that's probably a life lesson for everybody about everything they do—not necessarily this specific thing. But my one regret is that I didn't stop and smell the roses a little more, and just sort of soak it up and enjoy it. It's, but that's in, in my makeup. I was—I've um, kind of—I was very—I was distressed. I was just. Stressed. I was just it was a, yeah. quite a stressful time, and as you um, said,
1: you get carried along on a wave, and you—the pressure is on you to come up with the next hit after the last one. And the record company at yeah. the time must have been really demanding, so you just have to keep propelling yourself forward. You—you ha- you haven't got time to stop. It's quite a common theme.
2: You no, know, looking back, I think well, I, could, I had a choice. You know, I could say, well, I could have said, whoa, hang on a minute. You know, I could have done that, and, and just said, oh, I need a break or whatever. And I could have, you know, they wouldn't. What were they going to say? No, they—they they would have said yes, but. Some reason I just kind of I was I was as panicked as they were about losing it you know and not taking full advantage of the, the kind of attention I was getting so carrying
1: um, the momentum through yeah, yes exactly. absolutely. all of that stress
2: have any consequences long term not really no no i mean I, there were a few little uh, moments i recall sitting in hotel rooms in the corner rocking back and forth and <laughs> um blabbing my eyes out for no apparent reason but uh, but you know that that's that's life isn't it things things get to you sometime and it did but no i, I don't think it did any long-term damage to me really i mean and it, and it kind of toughened me up quite I, need yeah. a knee, I
1: It was the following year, in 1985, that Nick Kershaw was invited to take part in the biggest concert of his lifetime, that multi-venue extravaganza Live Aid.
2: Of course it was exciting. I was kind of a new boy when Band Aid record came out, and I think the people on that record were basically the people in Midge or Bob's address books, that because they literally got on the phone and started phoning people, and I wasn't part of that thing. I got involved because I was doing a German TV pop festival thing and was at Heathrow Airport and there was a bunch of us doing this one show and for some reason Bob Goldoff was there just sort of loitering and he just walked up to me and said do you want to do a gig? We're going to do a gig. You know about Band Aid? I said yeah of course I know about Band Aid. Well, we're going to do a gig. Do you fancy doing it? I said yeah great
1: the idea of holding a benefit caught on quickly. Audiences were keen to turn up at Wembley Stadium and organisers were told billions of people would watch the event on TV as it was broadcast live to the world.
2: I just watched it getting crazier and crazier and bigger and bigger and consequently getting more and more (laughs) nervous as the day approached. Sitting in the Royal Box, watching Status Quo kick it all off. I remember hanging out, backstage i remember talking to sting he just released dream of blue turtles album and i'm talking to him about that album and how much i enjoyed the album and he talked about how much fun it was to make it Incredibly nervous all day. And then somehow we ended up on stage. I just remember standing on, at the side of the stage. Uh, I hadn't seen my crew. I didn't know if my equipment was going to be on stage. I didn't know how much of it's going to be working. You just pray that it's going to work. And I don't know how my legs carried me on either. I don't remember the process of actually walking from the side of the stage out front to my microphone. because so I was literally terrified. Realized I didn't know the words to the second verse of Wouldn't It Be Good, and they never came to me. So I repeated the first verse. was quite extraordinary.
1: Live Aid raised nearly $130 million, and the publicity it generated encouraged Western nations to make available enough surplus grain to end the immediate hunger crisis in Africa. Bob Geldof was later knighted by Queen Elizabeth for his efforts. You pulled back from performing sometime after that, though, didn't you, and turned more to songwriting?
2: Yeah, that was 1989, I guess. I. I I was contracted to do four albums with, with MCA Records and the fourth one was, was, a, was an album called The Works which I recorded in Los Angeles and I wasn't happy with it and I bought it back and I came back again. And when I came back most of the record company had been sacked or, or whatever so it was almost a, a completely different record company and then I was on tour with Elton John. I was touring in Europe with Elton and the album wasn't doing well and understandably uh, and who spent a fortune on it as well, and understandably, MCA said, "Well, see you later. We're not, we're, we're kind of, we're not going to take up another option for for another album. So, um, see you." And I, so I, I was left with the choice there of, of, what do I do? Do I kind of go looking for another deal, or do I take this opportunity to, to try something different? And we just had our, our our first child was two years old. I think Rudy was two years old, and and I just kind of. I wanted to be around for watching my kids grow up, really, to do that. And I thought, well, I'm a songwriter. I'll just write songs. I can produce records and stuff like that. and I'll just do that, which was the cunning plan for the for the next nine years.
1: And that seemed to work pretty well. You wrote a whole. Well, lot it of
2: did okay, songs. yeah. There, there was a bit of a false dawn, really, because pretty much the first song that I have, that I wrote in the, with that mindset was the One and Only, which was massive hit for for Chesney. But it didn't. It, you know, that that didn't happen every week, unfortunately. <laughs> And it was a lot more difficult than I thought it was still, cause I was going to be because I spent a good sort of, oh, I don't know, a good, first couple of years at least just trying to learn how, how to write for other people because, I, 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 you know, I'd, I'd write something and I'd send it into the, the publishing company and they'd go, yeah, yeah, it's great, but it sounds a bit too much like Nick Kershaw. <laughs> how are we going to get it covered? You know How are we going to get it recorded by someone else? So I spent a, a while sort of not being me, really. <laughs> and writing, writing, just, just sort of writing songs as a craft.
1: The songs that you've written and produced for, for people like Sia and Gary Barlow, Bonnie Tyler, you actually had to get inside their heads to try and write in their stuff.
2: Yeah, to an extent, or just you just kind of, if you're just sitting in your studio um, writing a, a song for no one in particular, you just have to make sure it's not, you know, you've, you have to be quite generic with lyrics and you, don't, you can't sort of make any particular statement specific to you because someone else is gonna those words are gonna come out of someone else's mouth that's that's the wow. that's the first thing I did struggle with the whole writing for other people because I, I did spend a lot of time listening to pop music because I, I didn't really write pop music I got kind of lucky with a few songs the kind of mu- music that was getting covered all the time and that and you could deliver to artists and I, I found that difficult as well so ultimately it turned out not to be the right career move
1: Kershaw wrote that one, he's got a hold on me for Bonnie Tyler. Stay tuned. More to come.
0: This is A Breath of Fresh Air
1: with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying our chat with singer-songwriter and producer Nick Kershaw. Nick's already mentioned that he started writing for other people when his string of 80s hits ran out. He got incredibly lucky when the first one he offered a publisher was taken up by 19-year-old English actor and pop sensation Chesney Hawkes. The song The One and Only topped the UK singles chart for five weeks and reached the top ten in the United States. The royalties that came in from that song bought Nick Kershaw two houses.
2: I just wrote songs and put them on my shelf and took them to my publisher and people walked along and said, I'll have that one, which is what happened with the one and only and Chesney Hawks, because that was already written. But that doesn't happen very often. Your publisher would be aware of who's looking for songs and they might contact you saying, so-and-so's looking, have you got anything? And then you'd say yes or no, or I can write something. Or so-and-so has got an album coming out, he wants to do some co-writing, do you want to write with him? And I'd do that.
1: Prior to that, when you were writing for yourself, your songs had been very personal
2: Yeah, I didn't necessarily know that at the time but yeah, and it's much easier as I I discovered it took me nine years to discover it but it's much easier writing a song for yourself than it's for other people, much easier because you've got one person to please that's you you know and you think is this good yes i think it is then you carry on with it but then you're second guessing all the time when you're writing for other people you think is this good will they like it and you know will the manager like it will the manager's milkman like it will the manager's (laughs) mum like it with everybody everybody's got to like it the producer you know the producer's got to like it the record company's got to like it the the artist obviously has got to like it and they've, they've all got different opinions so you end up writing this kind of real sort of Average song because it's it, it's with the lowest common denominators in it because people, you know, it's more likely that everybody's going to like it.
1: I hear you. Of all those songs that you did write, was there one that you really did like?
2: Oh, yeah, I kind of liked, I, I still liked the songs, but I, I kind of, but they were diff, they were a different thing, you know. They were more, as I said, there was more like songwriting wasn't an art at that point. It was just, it was a craft. It was something that you did like making a pot or right. you which a good pot.
1: And which one did you like best? Oh my god! <laughs> There's a few to choose from.
2: Well, there are a few. That's one of the reasons that I'm recording these songs, which 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 never saw the light of day, really. And and one of the reasons they never saw the light of the day was because they were probably they were too much like me.
1: But of the ones you wrote for Elton, that you wrote for Sia, that you wrote for Bonnie Tyler.
2: Well, I wrote with. Well, I wrote with Sia, Obviously, I didn't. I didn't write for her. I wrote with her because she's got obviously very. Strong mind of her own, but that one never got recorded. I mean, that's it, that's sitting in my shelf, and nobody nobody will ever hear that. So I listened to it the other day, actually, and I think, wow, well, that's really good.
1: <laughs> but, so, but, so you you might record it for yourself?
2: No, because it's so, the inflection in the voice and the, and the lyric and everything is so seer. I can't. I mean, it's, it's not. I, right. I couldn't pull that off. You know, I right, really right, couldn't.
1: Right. And what about the ones you you work with Elton? on?
2: There was one song that I wrote for his duets album. I mean, he, he literally called me up, and, and, and I hadn't spoken to him for, for a couple of years, and he just phoned me out of the blue and said, I'm I'm doing a duets album, Matt. do you have any songs? And I didn't, not really. He said, well, can you write something? And I, and I said, well, okay, I'll give it a go. And I I gave it a go, and I and I delivered these two songs to him, and, and then he said, well, you know, you do realise I want you to sing them with me, because you know, I hadn't done an artist thing at all, for, for I hadn't made a record for for about four years, at that point, there were two songs I wrote, and one of them, "Old Friend," got on, we got on the album, yeah. working with him. Well, I've known him for a while and it, it it's a different thing working with him, you know, cuz how do you how do you pr- produce because I was producing it as well. So it's like how do you do that with someone of his stature, you know? How how do you, how do you produce someone like that? Cuz you you just assume they really know what they're doing, don't you? And you, you say well, that. you know the best and all that. Then you can't you can't produce a record like that cuz you you are in charge. You are trying to get the best out of this record. And the thing I found most amazing about Elton was that he'd take direction. I if, if, uh, said, so Elton, what about if you try this? And he'll go, yeah, all right. And it just was, he was probably one of the easiest people I've ever worked with in my life because he was just so, A, obviously very good at his job, and B, just, he just wanted the best for the record. He was just very easy to work with.
1: He probably figured you knew what you were doing
2: yeah maybe well I'm, I'm, there's a reason why you asked me in the first place I guess of Yeah, <laughs> of but no that was, that was that was a great few days in, in, in Metropolis Studios yeah
1: uh, and you did a whole bunch of stuff at Abbey Road Studios too
2: off and on over the years yeah I have I, I think some of, the, some of my last album was recorded there and it's not that there are many studios left in in London, to be honest, so you haven't got a lot of choice. If you want to record an orchestra and anything sort of big, you have to go to Abbey Road or, or Air Studios, pretty much.
1: Has your style changed much over the years?
2: Sure, I think it has. I think yeah, I probably couldn't nail it down but and tell you what it is that's changed. But you do, you change as a person and you change you, with life experiences and everything you learn. And you think, you know, you do something and you think, well, I won't do that again. But all, all these things come to the fore when, you, when you're writing. And you, I don't know what's changed, but I, I mean, it must be very different. I mean, my voice has changed. And I think my voice is better than it was back then. Because I never really, I was a guitar player, really. I just kind of got away with singing back then and i've kind of mellowed a bit over the years i just got older basically i got older and uh, hopefully a little bit wiser my output went down i'd say my my hunger decreased a little bit which is no bad thing because you end up just writing when you want to write you know i don't sit down and try and force a song out anymore it's just kind of if if something comes to me i'll I'll, I'll act on it
1: yeah well you, you you realized your dream and then you could take it easy i guess
2: Well, I guess so, although you never do, you never get to the stage when you think, yeah, I've done it. That's it. And there's no more to do. There's always something more to do.
1: So are you liking what you're hearing of the old material that you're re-recording now?
2: Well, yeah, I wouldn't release it into the public domain if I wasn't proud of it. Yeah, yeah. And and some of it quite surprised me. I'd listen to things. I mean, not not all of it. Some of it was not good, I have to say, you know, and, and, and that's But nobody's perfect. So that's the whole reason for releasing these these songs because the, there's got st- stuff in it that I, that I'm you know proud of and I want people to hear
0: you got it all worked out you've made your plans and out of the blue it comes and it's out of your hands but luck is a-
1: difficult to be objective about yourself when you listen to yourself from years back.
2: Well, it's actually much easier when when it's years back, because you can listen to it in the third person, you know. whereas if you're totally wrapped up in a project or a song, you can completely lose objectivity, which is why when when I write now, I'll write something and I'll just do a quick demo of it and stuff, and then I'll just put it away, and and I'll leave it for at least three or four months before I listen to it again so i can forget it you know i can forget and then i'll play it again and i'm I, so I can surprise myself i ambush myself with this song and think, at that point i can be really objective about it and say actually this is really good or actually <laughs> what did i bother <laughs> so it's, it's it's much easier in retrospect to be objective
1: and do you bounce it off anybody or is it your opinion that's the only one that actually
2: counts at this stage yeah i don't really i mean that's probably i probably should but I. I don't. I like to get things exactly how I think they should be before I play them to anybody, which is usually, uh, at that point, it's finished and it's ready to go out, you know. So so if anybody has got any suggestions, it's probably too late by that point anyway. Good to know. So that. I I don't know why that is. I just get, I, I'm a control freak and I like to get things my own way. And also I'm, I'm terrified of rejection and that people won't like things. So I just, I do it as I like and then chuck it out there. That's That's, that's the way I do it.
1: But I'd imagine that you don't measure success by, you know, album sales or single streams or anything anymore either. Tell me if I'm wrong, if you're happy with it, being the perfectionist and control freak that you are, if you're happy with it and you put it out there, does it matter to you what happens to it?
2: No, it doesn't, not really. Everybody wants to be loved, and everybody wants, you know, to be appreciated. And it's great when it happens, and people say that nice things about these things. And I do appreciate the feedback I get from fans and stuff. But ultimately, I'm making the records because that's kind of what I do, and I love doing it. There is no other reason. There, there isn't. It's pointless. And it, because if you looked into it, and, and you'd think, well, what's the point? Well, what's the point in making a record? It's not going to—it's not going to earn any money. It's not going to set the charts on fire. You I know, mean, I'm not prepared to do what I had to do back in—you know—30, 40 years ago, uh, in order to have a hit record. I'm not prepared to do that, so it won't be a hit record. And I, I don't—and I, so I know that before I start, so that pressure is completely off. So it's just about—it's it's the process. It's the process of making the record, um, and, and at that point, must I've made it, my my work is done as far as I'm concerned.
1: This is the first of six that you're putting out now. Do you have a timeline or they'll just come out when whenever you feel like it?
2: Whenever I feel, I mean, obviously, at some point I need to start working on my next album, actual new um, new material and stuff, which I haven't even made a, a start on yet. The last one was 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I don't want it. the next one to take me eight years, which is what the that was the gap between the, the last two albums. So... I'll probably do these these six songs as Songs from the Shelf Part 2 and then I'll start getting stuck into the next album.
1: That last album that you were talking about was called Oxymoron, was mm-hmm. released in 2020, as you said. Favourite track on that one?
2: Oh, I don't know. Um, Can't Go On, I love that track. Babylon Brothers, I love that track. What are you talking
1: about in that one?
2: That one is, is very, it's, it's really looking back at my formative years when I was first getting into music and all my influences and all and all the, the energy and the excitement and the sharing it with your mates and, and just all that. And there are loads of references to the songs and the artists of that time and, um, and watching Old Grey Whistle Test on a Tuesday night and just... The hunger for all the new, the new music and how passionately he felt about all that stuff and we were like brothers in arms basically, we just a bunch of us just, hey, you know, have you heard this one, check this out and all this that, that on the, all that excitement and it's about that really what and it's it? not about tune either as luck would have it <laughs> <laughs> There
0: we all were delirious, insatiable and curious We laughed Just how good it was So close we were to God At 33 and then a third We bathed in every single word And disbelieved the joy we heard Until we passed it on Tuesday nights we did our best Afraid to fail our whistle test A call to arms And we were blessed
1: thank you so much for talking with us what a pleasure meeting you i'm sure brett's going to be rapt to hear how you're doing these days everyone will be very happy to hear that you're making new music lots to come still from you and feeling pretty good about yourself
2: Can thank you... you sandy it's been a been an absolute pleasure Bye-bye. Bye bye
1: a very talented Nick Kershaw there. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you'd like to check out any of my back episodes, head for your favourite podcast player or to the website a breathoffreshair.com.au. You'll find all the episodes listed on both platforms. Hope you have a fabulous next few days coming up. I'll look forward to being back in your company same time next week. Bye now. Because it's
0: a beautiful day here. Mm. Been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.